I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but perhaps someone has asked you to do something and you say, well, I'm not sure if I want to commit to that. Or maybe you're scheduled to do something Maybe you're scheduled to do something, and you decide that you would rather do something else. So you try to come up with a way to get out of the first thing. What is the motivation that drives us to think that way? In many cases, it's the fear of missing out on something else. We think that we're going to miss out on this thing, so we try to get out of that thing. Or we think that we really want to do this thing, so we don't uh, pursue something else that, that someone says, hey, would you like to do this? And if you ever find yourself asking that question, should I be somewhere else instead, you're not alone. That fear of missing out on some relationship or experience is a common motivation for us to chase after all sorts of different things or to try to restructure our lives to pick the best things, the things that we really want to do. But what if the thing that you were worried about missing out on, the thing that you thought uh, you really wanted to do, what if you were worried about missing out on it because of false information? For example, somebody says it's going to be on this date, and so you say, I'm, I'm going to rearrange my schedule, make sure I'm there, and then you find out, oh, it was actually the week before. That's a similar situation to what we find in our passage this morning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So turn there with me, if you would. In 2 Thessalonians 2, what were the Thessalonians fearful of missing out on? They were fearful that they had missed the return of Christ. And so... Instead, they were worried that they were potentially experiencing God's wrath, probably in connection with the trials and difficulties and persecution that they were facing. They were perhaps afraid that they were experiencing the beginning of God's wrath, that they had missed the return of Christ. And there were several potential reasons that they were thinking this. We'll get to those in a few moments. But Paul is writing to them to reassure them. He says, essentially, don't worry that you've missed out. And he says it in two phrases. Don't be shaken from your composure, and the other one is, don't be deceived about the future. And these seem simple enough, but I think for the kids, for all of us, I think answering the question of why we should not be shaken from our composure, and why we should not be deceived about the future, I think these are things that the passage we're looking at this morning will help us to answer some things that we should consider. So let's start first with don't be shaken from your composure. We see this, I think, beginning in verse 1. I think he clarifies in verse 1 for us what was it they were not supposed to be shaken about. What was it that they weren't supposed to be like, I'm caught in an earthquake and, and things are falling off the shelves and I don't know what's going on. What was the subject that he says not to be shaken about? With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now, some uh, might look at this and, and make much of the order of these two phrases uh, and the difficulty with that, or a potential concern with that, would be that um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it talks about Christ returning for his people, uh, but he doesn't physically come to rule and reign on earth at that point yet. And so what's the relationship between that passage and the order of these two phrases? I think Paul is less focused on the order of events in this particular verse and more focused on giving the specific topic that he's addressing. What's the topic? What's God doing in end times? What's going to happen to us in end times? Let's talk about that together. And what does he say? 
He's saying, don't be quickly shaken from your composure. Don't be disturbed. Why? Or by what? By false teaching. False teaching, it says here, by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Why do I say false teaching? Because of that phrase where it says, as if from us. So the source is clearly not Paul and those who had been ministering to the Thessalonians up to this point. So what then were the possible sources by which this teaching, this idea that the day of the Lord had already come, what were some of the possible sources of it? Well, it says spirit. And we know that in the early church that there were uh, messages from God. And he said back in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he said, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. And so we look at that, and we recognize that there would have potentially been someone who said that God has given me a message. They said, perhaps, that I'm a, one of these prophets that we see in the New Testament, and here's a message, and the message is this, the day of the Lord has already come. Well, what then were the Thessalonians supposed to do? They needed to, as Paul had written in his previous letter, examine whether that claim was true. Did it match to what they already knew? Did it uh, fit with truth that they knew about God generally? They had a command to examine everything carefully. And regarding a message or a letter, uh, the message probably would have been something uh, that someone would have come and said, I'm coming from Paul, and here's the message that he has for you. Or here's a letter, and this is from Paul, and this letter says something to you. And so Paul says, whatever the source, you need to make sure that you think about what you've already learned. How would they know if a letter was true or false? Well, there's at least a couple of possibilities. One would have been, who brought the letter? Paul would send trusted messengers to bring his letters, to bring his messages to the various churches, men like Timothy, for example. And so if the letter wasn't, one of these known, or wasn't brought by one of these known associates of Paul, that would have been a reason for the early church to be suspicious that it was real. What was another thing they were supposed to watch out for? Well, uh, chapter 3 and verse 17 says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way that I write. That could be referring either to his signature at the end of the letter or to his particular style and content of what he put in the letter. And so one of the other things that they could watch out for is not only who brought us this message, but also does it fit with the way that Paul taught us when he was here, and does it have his, his, his mark of approval? You know, at the, we've been seeing a lot of political ads on TV. What do they say at the end sometimes? I approve this message. Paul's signature was a sign that this was, in fact, from him. And so uh, Paul warns them not to be shaken by supposed messages from God coming from various places with what content? To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, it's interesting that the deceit was not that the day of the Lord is not coming at all. Because we would think that that might be a possible thing, someone would say. But in this case, it's not that the day of the Lord is not coming at all. It's that you've missed out on it. And I think it's interesting to take the form, to see the forms that various errors take. And we have to watch out for these. Oftentimes, errors will include a topic, a subject of truth that has been changed in some way. Think back to the Garden of Eden. What was it that Eve said to Satan when Satan said, 
has God said you shouldn't eat of this tree? Eve says, I shouldn't eat of it, nor should I touch it. Is that what God said? No. She, or Adam, communicated to her, we don't know exactly which, uh, had added to what God had said and said, this is, this is what it is. And Paul is saying, you need to watch out because someone is taking this truth that Jesus Christ is coming, and they're trying to persuade you that this has already happened. And he's also warning them because this would be in contradiction to what they had already heard. Look at verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And so we might, at, the, at first glance, read verses 1 and 2 and think, well, they just didn't know any better. And Paul, I think, is giving them at least a mild rebuke in verse 5 and saying, but I already taught you about these things. So you should have known to watch out for them, and you should have known not to be quickly disturbed or shaken or confused about what's going on. So don't worry that you've missed out on Christ's return because of false teaching that contradicts what you already know. But furthermore, don't be deceived about the future. We see this as uh, certainly the larger portion of the passage beginning in verse 3. He says, let no one in any way deceive you. And I think it's interesting because he, he includes this concept of deceit both in verse 3 and then he's also going to include it in verses 10, 11, and 12. And so, as we look at this, Paul is very concerned that they would not be deceived. What is it that he doesn't want them to be deceived about, or why shouldn't they be deceived? His argument, I believe, is simply that Christ's return follows a certain order. So if we look back to verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that short phrase seems very simple. Jesus is going to come back, we're going to be gathered. But as we've looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5 and uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 and now this passage, there's a lot more that goes on in the end times than just uh, we might see at first glance just reading that simple phrase. And so the concept, I think as we see as many other truths in Scripture, it's given initially and then it's explained in more detail. These details don't change what the original message was. It, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is still coming back. It explains more about what that looks like. And so let's try to pull these truths together that we've been looking at over the past month or so from First and Second Thessalonians and, and, and try to put them in order. I think we can see from First Thessalonians chapter 4 that Christ returns for the church in the rapture. Just to review a few things that we looked at from that passage, the, the destiny of Christians is to be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and to live together with Him, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 10. The destiny of Christians is not to be surprised by God's judgment. We saw this in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 4. Don't be surprised by these things. It shouldn't surprise you like a thief breaking into your house. No one knew he was coming. Why? Because you have the truth. You're of the day. You're alert. You're sober. Nor are Christians to expect that they will face God's wrath. We saw this in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. Jesus who rescues us from wrath to come. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think the focus here is that God has not finally and fully destined us for wrath, of which his pouring out of wrath in the end times during the day of the Lord is the most significant expression that we see described in Scripture. This, of course, does not mean Christians will never have difficulty in this life. Sometimes people might read a verse like that and they say, well, life is always going to be easy. 
Well, there's a lot of other passages that would contradict that. Jesus said, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. You have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. This isn't language of follow Jesus because he's going to make your life really easy and amazing and wonderful, although God does pour out blessings on us, but rather that God is not going to finally judge us along with the unbelieving world in the end times. This also doesn't exclude uh, the idea of nations rising and falling. God's people, those who trust in Him, have been a part of that process at various points in history. Sometimes as a result of God's judgment on them as a nation, we see this with Israel and Judah, sometimes in connection with God's judgment on another nation that they just happen to be living in. And so again, not being under God's wrath doesn't mean no difficulty, no trial, or anything like that, but it does mean that in the final day, we will not be under God's condemnation along with the unbelieving world. So what comes first? I believe that what comes first is Christ returns for his church in the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. But what comes next is described in verse 3, the apostasy will come first. Apostasy has existed since Christ came. What is apostasy? It is falling away from the truth. Who was perhaps the first example in connection with Christ that we have of this? It's Judas Iscariot. Did he know the truth? Yes, he was there with Jesus for three years, and what happened? He fell away. Or, as John says in 1 John 2.18, there are many antichrists that have come into the world, but he was yet looking to a specific antichrist, one who opposes Christ. And so there is coming a day that Paul writes about and other authors of Scripture would refer to as well, in which there will be apostasy, and not just a localized apostasy. This has been a, a concern of, of churches, I think, throughout history, that people would not fall away from the faith, or in generally that society would have at least some concept of God. But I think we see in the end times an unparalleled apostasy, a desertion of the truth of Scripture, and a turning aside to worship false gods. And we see this, for example, in Revelation 13 and verse 8. It says in reference to the one who is coming, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. So it's not just this person is following this false religion, this person is following that false religion. There will be a whole scale, a widespread, a worldwide turning of people to worship a false god in the form of the Antichrist. And this is in connection with uh, the next point in verse 3, which is that the man of lawlessness is revealed. And people, uh, people dispute whether these two things are, are simultaneous or whether they sort of happen all in the same point of time. I think they're all grouped closely together, but I think there is a certain order here. It says, And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. It's interesting that that same phrase was also used to describe uh, Judas Iscariot, the son of destruction, the son of perdition. Uh, who is this man of lawlessness? He's described in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10, as the Antichrist, the beast, or in Daniel 9, 26 and 27, as the prince who is to come. And so this man of lawlessness, he's described as a man of lawlessness because in contrast to those who follow God's law. He has no regard for God's law. He seeks his own way, his own purpose. In pride, he exalts himself. I think it's important to clarify that the Antichrist is not Satan. 
the power of Satan stands behind him. Satan is the one who is motivating him and directing his steps and giving him power to do what he's doing, but he's not the same as Satan. We see, uh, again, in Revelation 13, Satan is described as a dragon, and then uh, Antichrist is described as a beast. He will deceive people. Look at verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed. We'll come back to the phrase there where it says, Whom the Lord will slay. Verse 9, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. So there are going to be miracles performed in the end times that will deceive people that the Antichrist is in fact someone that they should worship. Now, have we seen evidence of false miracles in Scripture before? I think we'd have to say yes. Consider what happens when Moses goes before Pharaoh. Moses throws down his staff. It turns into a serpent. What do Pharaoh's magicians do? They do the same thing. Now, of course, we see that the, the power of God is more powerful than Satan because Moses' serpent destroys the other serpents. And yet, even so, they had a limited ability to do false miracles that were a mockery, and in similarity to the true miracles. This will also happen in the end times. Uh, people dispute exactly what this looks like, but uh, I'm sure if you've read any, any of the popular end times books, there's this idea that the, the Antichrist will receive a, de a deadly wound and will yet be healed. Now, who has power to raise from the dead? God. And yet, if Antichrist is wounded and has the ability... To be restored to health, would that be a false miracle? Yes, because people are going to look at that and they're going to say, hey, follow him, worship him. He's someone who's powerful. We need to believe in him. Connected with this, I think that we have to be careful that we do not overestimate the power of miracles. Why do I say that? Jesus in his parable uh, about the rich man and Lazarus said this, here's a man who rejected God, who dies, who is tormented, and he says, well, let me go back or show some sign to my family. What's the response? If they don't believe the scriptures, they're not going to believe the miracles. How do we know that this is the case? Look at the people of Israel when Jesus came. How many miracles did Jesus do? I mean, uh, he also said, if the miracles that had been done in these cities had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah long ago, they would have repented. And yet, they had the word of God, they had the truth of all people, they should have believed and recognized Jesus when he came, but they did not. And so we need to recognize that there is the potential for miracles to be false. And so if someone were to, were to come and to say, look at this amazing thing that happens, and, and you need to go follow this thing and worship this person or, or this uh, uh, false god, what would the only proper response be? No, we have to worship the true God, because to turn aside is to follow uh, Satan instead. These miracles, uh, I think, will parallel what was done in the time of Moses and even Christ himself. And these miracles, uh, he describes it in different ways. Power, to demonstrate the strength or the ability. Signs, to represent something significant. Wonders, to cause amazement. 
and these will be performed by the false prophet, according to Revelation 13. And so in Revelation 13, you have described the dragon, who is Satan, the first beast, who is the Antichrist, the second beast, who is the false prophet. The false prophet is going to perform miracles and say, hey, worship the Antichrist, and indirectly worship Satan because he does all of these things. What's the response? What happens after that? Verse 8. He's described as those the one whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Now, that phrase in verse 8 takes place after verses 9 and 10. Why? Because he has to have an opportunity to perform the deceit, the false miracles, all of these sorts of things, and then God comes and judges him. We see that described in Revelation 19, verses 20 and 21. There are these armies that are gathered in opposition to Christ, led by the Antichrist and the false prophet, and what happens? They are destroyed. It says there is a sword coming out of the mouth of the one who rides on the horse in Revelation 19, and here it says that he is slain with the breath of his mouth. Uh, basically, I think what it's saying here is even as God spoke creation into existence, God can speak and undo creation, but not in a form of annihilation, in a form of total and complete destruction. These armies come against him, and they are killed, slain by the breath of his mouth. They are brought to an end by the appearance of his coming. It's interesting that in another passage, those who follow Christ are described as those who love his appearance. And here, we see his appearance is terrifying. And then what comes after this? After the Antichrist, after the false prophet are slain, Christ will reign for a thousand years, as it says in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. There will be a brief resurgence. Satan is released from his bondage. He will uh, uh, gather the nations of the earth once more in a final attempt to overthrow Christ in his reign. And again, he will be defeated, and he will be finally condemned to the lake of fire and no longer have any opportunity to do what's described here, which is to deceive the nations. Why should we not be deceived? Because the order of things is described in this passage in connection with other passages, and Paul had taught much to the Thessalonian believers about the return of Christ, and so Paul's argument is essentially this. You're not living in the day of the Lord because the man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed. The man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed because as bad as things may seem, there has not been this worldwide apostasy. Which raises the question for us of, can we know when Christ will come back? I think the answer is yes and no. We cannot, to some extent, know when Christ will come back because no one knows the day or the hour. But it will be, the, these events will be set in motion by the return of Christ for his people. So with regards to the rapture, do we know when that will happen? No. But once that takes place, all of these other things will follow in a certain order afterward. And Paul is basically saying, I've taught you about these things. Don't be deceived about it. I mean, someone may come and have a really convincing argument, or they say, hey, this is a message from God, or this is a message from the apostles. He says, don't be deceived by it. Why is Paul so hung up on them not being deceived? Because being deceived is a sign of God's judgment. Look at verse 11. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Now look at that verse and we say, wait a minute. God is not a man that he should lie, 
God is truth. What is verse 11 saying? And so that we're not taken by surprise, uh, turn back with me, if you would, to 1 Kings 22. Starting in verse 19. This is a prophet, uh, Micaiah, and this is what it says. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. So the first question we would ask is, is there any precedent for this taking place? And the answer is yes. What's the context for God sending this deceiving spirit to cause the prophets to speak falsely in the presence of Ahab? Well, first of all, we have to ask, what sort of a person was Ahab? A godly king or an ungodly king? Certainly an ungodly one. And had God given Ahab repeated opportunities to repent, which Ahab had refused? The answer is also yes to that. And so when God does this, causing Ahab to be deceived so that he would go up to Ramoth Gilead, fall in battle, and have the destruction that had been prophesied against him brought into effect... Was God wrong in doing so? I think this is, a, this is a challenging thing to think through, right? Because it calls in a question, does God lie? And some people have said, well, the solution to that passage and the solution to this passage is to say, well, God is at least a couple of steps removed from this, and so we can't blame him for it. And while I think that that is true in some passages... I'm not sure that we can say that God is two or three steps removed in verse 11 where it says God will send upon them a deluding influence. And I think that understanding this verse is somewhat connected with understanding God's relationship to Satan and to evil in the world. And that's a topic we certainly can't cover exhaustively this morning, but at least in this aspect, we have to ask this question, is Satan more powerful, or is God more powerful? Who's in charge of the situation? The answer I think we would have to recognize is that God is in charge of the situation. We know that from a number of passages, uh, one of which would be Job 1 and 2, where it says even Satan has to come and give an account to God of his activities, and that God sets the boundaries of what he can and can't do. Is God being dishonest to send a lie upon those who do not believe the truth, as it says in verse 12. I think we have to say no, because he's doing it in the context of judgment. Let me give you a few parallels to consider. Romans chapter 1 says God gives people over to do sin. Does that mean that God is okay with the sin that the people are doing? No. 
But to a certain extent, God abandoning you to live in the sin that you love is a horrible and a terrific judgment. Why? Because we need God to take us away from the sin that we love. We say, okay, but uh, isn't there still some accountability for the people connected with that? I would answer yes. Consider what it says in Acts 2. You, by the hands of wicked men, crucified Jesus. So what is it saying there? The people who crucified Jesus were responsible for an act of wicked murder. And yet, their act of murder accomplished our salvation and carried out God's purpose. And so that is one of the things that's at the very heart of Christianity, that, that we're sinners, that the only way of salvation is in Jesus, and the way that God accomplished that was through wicked men doing a wicked thing. Does that mean that God's character is somehow uh, less righteous? I think we'd have to say no. So, so what's the relationship between these things? I think it's connected with what we saw perhaps even last week, that that God is sovereign even over pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus. He can say, you are my servant to do my will, even though they have no thought of him, no desire for him, no recognition that they're doing what he wants. Because God rules over the world and bends it according to his purpose, he incorporates all things in the world to accomplish his plan in such a way that his righteousness is not called in question, and yet even the wickedness of men is used to accomplish his purpose. Bringing that back to verse 11, what does that mean? God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. What characterizes those who do not know God? Lying, dishonesty, deceit. Jesus uh, accused the Pharisees of this. He says, you are, follow the pattern of your father, the devil. He's been a liar from the beginning. And so those who love to be deceived, God is saying, I will in judgment cause them to be deceived. God is punishing them uh, for persistent wickedness. Uh, think back to... Uh, chapter 1 and verse 8, it described those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. When we hear the gospel message, God says, you're a sinner. The only hope that you have is believing in Jesus who paid the price for that sin and you need to turn away from your sin and cast yourself on my mercy through Jesus and follow me. And someone says, that's not for me. It's not just a, a picking between which thing you order at McDonald's. It's a life and death decision in which God has given you a command, an instruction, something that you must obey. And if you choose not to do it, it's not just, I didn't feel like that option today. It is disobedience. In the same way, in verse 11, when it says they believe what is false, God has said, here's the truth. And like it says in Romans 1, we suppress the truth, we ignore the truth, we try to stamp out the, the uh, effects of our conscience about right and wrong. We try to look and be blinded about the existence of God and creation. We look out in the world and we say, look at all these amazing things that happen by accident that have nothing to do with the God I don't want to acknowledge. Paul is saying, 
those who persist in that sort of wicked unbelief and disobedience, God is going to cause them to continue to be deceived as a sign of judgment. It says in verse 12, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And we look at this and we say, well, that's not fair. We, we feel sorry for people in this context. We should have compassion on those who do not believe at the present time. But when that day comes and God sends a delusion on those who still persist in their wickedness and we're in God's presence and we're watching what's going to happen, there will no longer be any room for compassion and any place for deliverance. So what does that call us to do? Do something about it now while we still have opportunity. Because then it's going to be too late. When they're deceived, when they gather as an army against Christ and they're destroyed by the breath of His mouth and by the appearance of His coming, there's not going to be another opportunity for repentance. For you, for me, for the people around us. So when do we need to talk to them? Now. What is, what is this verse saying? It's saying, you loved lying. I will send you a lie and you're going to believe it again and be yet more condemned for your unbelief. Is God wrong to do this? No. But when we see this verse, it's easy for us to, to say, well, is God doing what's right? Is God not doing what's right? And we should consider that question. But sometimes we don't take the next step and say, but here are people who are trapped in deceit What are we doing about that? And even as I say that to you, I, I, I'm convicted myself. There's, there's conversations that I should have had, that you should have had, that all of us should have had with people around us who are caught up in their deceit, and oftentimes we are afraid to say something, or we don't know what to say, so we just don't say anything. And there's a balance, there's a, there's a tension there, because... Sometimes they're family members and we've said the truth to them over and over again and it doesn't seem like they're listening and so we say, well, I don't know if I should keep doing it. I would say at, at minimum, keep praying for their souls. And certainly every time you see an opportunity, speak to them the truth. Not necessarily quit doing all these bad things that you're doing because the reality is they're not going to quit doing those bad things as long as they're living for themselves. Sometimes we think, well, we're going to sort of clean people up, get them in church, and then everything will be fine. If God hasn't changed their hearts, it doesn't matter if they're, if they're wearing a suit and tie or, or a nice outfit and they walk into church and they sit through the service. At the end of the day, that is not the most important thing. It should follow after knowing Christ that they would, they would want to live in a way that pleases Him. And yet, the most important thing is that they are deceived. And so... How do we talk to people? I think a lot of it comes down to our tone and our attitude. Do we come to them, as it says in Corinthians, pleading with them as God's ambassadors, be reconciled to God? Or as it says in other places, flee from the wrath to come. Do we have that sort of, of attitude toward people? Because we have a very narrow window in which we are alive and in which they are alive and they have an opportunity to repent. So what does Paul say about these end-time events? He says, don't be quickly shaken. Don't be deceived by a message that says you've missed out on it. Whatever the source may be, 
because you've already been taught truth, and you know according to the truth that you've been taught that this message that says it's already happened is false. So don't be deceived by false teaching, and let that cause you to be shaken from your confidence, your composure. But furthermore, recognize that there are certain things that will happen in the end times, and so know what the order is, and recognize that being deceived is a sign of God's judgment, so don't be deceived yourself, and by application, take the truth to those who are deceived. We are to wait for God's Son from heaven, Jesus who delivers us from coming wrath. But if we really understand what that means, that will change the way that we speak to the people around us because we're not facing God's wrath. But if they don't know Him, they are facing God's wrath. So I pray that that would fill our hearts and minds this week, that it would change what we say and we do. And, and, and I'm sure many of you are having those conversations with people, so keep having them. But don't let it just be something that sort of drifts off to the side and like, well, I'll get to that sometime. Don't let it be like that, for me, that stack of papers that was sitting on my desk before I moved, and it's still sitting on my desk that I need to deal with. Let it be like that, that bill that's coming due tomorrow that you're like, I gotta pay this or there's gonna be consequences. Recognize that there are significant consequences for those around us if they don't hear the truth, and that God has put on us a responsibility to communicate it to them so that they will not continue to be deceived. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be deceived. There are many places in which we can be deceived, things we can be deceived about. There are many sources that deceit comes from, but more importantly, to be deceived is to not know the truth that you've already given to us, and it's potentially a sign of your judgment because you will punish those who continue not to uh, believe in you with uh, causing them to continue to be deceived. Lord, I pray that all of us here today would know your truth, that we would live in it, not just know it as a fact off to the side, but live by it. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know your truth, I pray that they would uh, recognize what's been said this morning, seek to know more of it, turn from their sin and follow you, and then be motivated not just to live for you themselves, but also to draw others to the truth uh, through day, daily living and through the words that we speak of your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.